This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Eamon Callan. I'm the acting director of the Ethics and Society program at Stanford, which uh, co-hosts the Tanner Lectures with the Office of the President. Um, before we proceed with uh, the real business of, of um, our gathering today, I would like to express gratitude, first of all, to the Humanities Center, which has allowed us to use this um, very congenial uh, facility for the lectures. And I'd also like to uh, give a special word of thanks to somebody who has done all the organizational work behind the scenes on this year's Tanner Lectures. And she has discharged her responsibilities with remarkable uh, tact and elan and timeliness, and that is Joni Berry here. So please, everyone. Um, I'd also like to uh, remind you, in case you've forgotten, that tomorrow at um, 10 a.m. in the Landau Economics Building in CEPR A, we will have a seminar um, that's devoted to a discussion of today's lecture. And uh, Tommy Shelby and Lloyd Quisquant will be the speakers on that occasion. And if it's as scintillating as today's seminar was, I'm sure it'll be something you don't want to miss. Anyhow, Glenn Laurie, who needs no introduction from me. Thank you very much. I'm uh, delighted to be back. In the previous lecture, I argued that the racially disparate incidence of the massive punitive structure which has been built in the United States over the past 30 years is, when viewed in historical context, patently unjust, and that this situation weakens the legitimacy of the American political regime, appropriately so, in the eyes of many of its citizens and in the view of a great many people throughout the world who see our social practice in light of our racial history as barbaric. I offered a concise, dense, and brutal history of the rise of the race-class punishment nexus since the 1960s, covering basic facts about incarceration rates, about how the incidence of punishment varies by social location, and about the social and epidemiological harm that punishment inflicts on the communities from which offenders come and to which they return. I was keen to emphasize the connection of this development to the rhetoric of social discipline writ large in our recent politics, rhetoric about dependency, personal responsibility, social hygiene, and punishment as the reclamation of public order. Moreover, I was insistent that this development must be viewed within the context of America's often brutal, ugly, and violent racial history. Slavery ended a long time ago, I acknowledge, but I observe the institution of chattel slavery and the ideological uh, the ideology of racial subordination that necessarily accompanied it have cast a very long shadow. Those distant events are not unrelated to our current situation, neither is a matter of objective historical causation, the structure of our cities with their massive racial ghettos being implicated in the production of deviancy amongst those living there, nor is a matter of ethical evaluation, the decency of our institutions being dependent on the extent to which they comport with a narrative of national purpose that involves acknowledging and acting to correct history's wrongs. I argued that race was not peripheral, but central to the evolution of social policy in the United States in this post-civil rights era, 
and that the rise of the mass incarceration state should be viewed within that broader context. I suggested that there is a reason why the United States is so exceptional among the democratic industrial societies in the severity and extent of its punitive policy and in the paucity of its social welfare institutions. There is a reason, I suggested, why such social solidarity as we can muster seems not to extend into these marginal backwaters. There is a reason why our inclination toward forgiveness and the extension of a second chance to those who have violated our behavioral strictures is so stunted and why our mainstream political discourses are so bereft of reflexive self-examination and searching social criticism. These phenomena, I suggested, have a great deal to do with the fact that the faces at the bottom of the well in American society, to borrow Derrick Bell's phrase, are vastly disproportionately black and brown. I claimed and tried to support the claim with extensive empirical evidence that the rise of the mass imprisonment state opens a new front in the historic struggle for racial justice. I was unapologetic about linking the notions of race and social justice. I rejected the purely procedural conception of racial fairness, wherein the goal is set at merely ensuring equal treatment before the law, thereafter letting the chips fall as they may. Instead, I advocated the rather more demanding idea of substantive racial justice wherein the goal is to bring about through conventional social policy and far-reaching institutional reforms a situation in which the fact of historic racial oppression is no longer so evident in the disparate life experiences of those who descend from slaves. I argued that the enormous racial disparity in our punishment policy reflects both explicit and tacit racism, that this policy has been popular sometimes because and sometimes despite it's having a disproportionately adverse impact on blacks. And I suggested that all of this has occurred when feasible alternative policies existed and were known to exist that might have produced much less harm. Finally, I claim that this punishment policy complex has become the principal way that racial hierarchy is now reproduced in our society and uh, that this matter requires and deserves the concerted attention of the nation's policymakers in a rush to declare ourselves healed of the disease of racism which had been festering for a century after emancipation, we have embraced what Michael Tonnery calls a policy of malign neglect. Now, with that summary in hand, let me offer just a bit tongue-in-cheek a prologue for this second lecture. I ask you to consider an imaginary dialogue between two distinguished social scientists whom I shall refer to as Dr. Rationalist and Dr. Functionalist. Or rather than two different scholars, maybe these are two warring voices within one poor scholar's head. <laughs> Dr. Rationalist chanting, but otherwise sitting very still, relations before transactions, relations before transactions, relations before transactions. Dr. Functionalist enters with a start, alarmed. What's wrong, my friend? Why are you saying that? You must be the culprit who lifted my copy of Bourdieu last week. <laughs> Rationalist, no, I am not. And who's Bourdieu anyway? One of those airy French sociologists you're always fawning over, I'll bet. <laughs> it's my mantra. I'm meditating. It's very calming. You ought to try it sometimes. Ignoring the dig, Dr. Functionalist says, I meditate all the time. Remember, I'm the one who belongs to a profession fraught with anxiety, but what's your excuse? Rationalist. Well, I've been having a recurrent nightmare lately. I wanted to stop. My, my shrink thinks meditation might help. Functionalist, who's your shrink? Rationalist, 
Oh, this guy who was my roommate at Swarthmore, brilliant dude, works a lot with gunshot victims, uh, inner city types involved in the drug trade and so forth. He thinks they're making passive suicide attempts. Writes books about that stuff, full of all this talk about fear, self-loathing, hopelessness, existential abyss, Freud, Nietzsche, Desaad. Strange guy, but brilliant. He gave me the mantra and promised it would help. Said I should repeat it slowly while taking deep breaths. Functionalist, perhaps. But remember what I told you about those pizzas, not a good idea after midnight. Did you say Desaad? Anyway, what's the dream? Rationalist. Oh, it's awful. I'm back in grad school. I'm sitting in my usual place right in front of the class. The professor has posed what he says is an important question. He invited one of us to the board to work out the answer. I get there first and proceed to fill the board with equations. Finally, I arrive at what must be the solution. My derivation is far too elegant not to be true. I turn to explain myself to the rest of the class. Just then, I realize I've forgotten the original question. I rack my very large brain, but for the life of me, I can't recall it. The class begins to snicker. They're a ruthless bunch when they smell blood. The guffaws and catcalls grow louder. It's humiliating. Just humiliating begins to tremble uncontrollably. Functionalist comforting his friend. Yeah, I can see that. It's got to be tough being the smartest person in the room, but without a clue as to what's the point. <laughs> you, ought to, you ought to stick with this shrink, though. Dreams can be really revealing, you know, but uh, I'm not sure I get the mantra. And uh, what's the professor's question, anyway? Rationalist. He asks us to explain how durable racial inequality in the United States can be squared with the premises of rational choice theory without assuming any innate racial inferiority or postulating any unexplained preference for own group association. Functionalist. That's a damn good question. It's a tough one, too. You're telling me you ran to the blackboard to take that one on? <laughs> Brave man. Fools jump in where angels fear to tread, he thinks. Rationalist. Well, to be honest, in the dream, I always start to the board before he finishes posing the question. It happens the same way every time. I can't stop myself. The trembling returns. Functionalist, in a bright tone, hoping to shift to a happier subject. So what was your elegant solution? Rationalist, I tell you, but what with the math and all, you never understand. At this, functionalist takes offense and starts off, storms off angrily. The rationalist yells after him. Besides, I'm not sure I believe it anymore myself. Anyway, my shrink gave me this mantra, and it seems to be helping. And he returns to his chanting, relations before transactions, relations before transactions. End of prologue. This afternoon, I, a humble non-philosopher, will nevertheless try to employ the tools of my trade in the service of a normative argument. I will endeavor to defend, endeavor to defend some of the value statements embodied in yesterday's lecture, which I confess, veered off at times into vituperation and the rhetoric of moral outrage. For this, I offer no apology. As an economist, I am aware that I tread on thin ice here. My professional training and practice have not prepared me for the task at hand. I must confess that when I'm feeling like Dr. Rationalist in that opening dialogue, I'm beset by doubts. What can a mere economist offer to a debate about fundamental social values? beyond getting the numbers straight and ensuring that the logic of a causal argument is devoid of internal contradiction? How can the rational choice style of reasoning that is natural to an economist shed light on the moral issues at hand? 
If criminals must be held responsible for their wrongful deeds, if blacks are found more frequently to have acted wrongly, and if one wants to argue that their disproportionate punishment is somehow unjust, which is to say that the sum of individual cases judged more or less fairly nevertheless amounts in the aggregate to morally unfounded social judgment, then what good is a mere reckoning of cost and benefits? Frankly, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that question, which is why I identify so closely with our troubled Dr. Rationalist in that opening dialogue. But then I also have great sympathy for the position of Dr. Functionalist. In any event, I feel compelled to step out onto the proverbial limb in an effort to try to bridge the gap between the utilitarian worldview of my profession and the deontological outlook of contemporary moral theory. And so, here goes. While much of the discussion to come is abstract and theoretical, it is not divorced from the reality that I tried vividly to render in yesterday's more descriptive and empirical exposition. The connection between theoretical abstraction and concrete social reality lies in our need to elaborate foundational principles by means of which we can critically assess inequality in this society, and in particular, the racially unequal allocation of punishment. I will pose this task of ethical assessment as a problem in the theory of distributive justice and approach that problem from a Rawlsian perspective, invoking his famed difference principle, that departures from equality are only justified to the extent that they work to improve the circumstances of the least disadvantaged, of the least advantaged members of society. Except that now, the object of moral inquiry is not the distribution among individuals of wealth and income, but instead the distribution of a negative good, punishment, among individuals, and importantly, between racial groups. So let us put ourselves in Rawls' uh, original position and imagine a situation where each of us could occupy any rank in the social hierarchy, including that of black American male outcast shuffling between prison and the labor market on his way to an early death to the chorus, courtesy of Fox News, of nigger or criminal or dummy. What set of social rules would we devise if we actually thought that they could be us? What set of institutions should we create so as to maximize human developmental potential? And most pointedly, what set of punishment institutions would we create in order to contain bad behavior and protect society, to be sure, but in ways that respect the humanity of each individual and of those they are connected to via the bonds of social and psychic affiliation? If it were indeed the case that any one of us had a real chance of being one of those faces looking up from the bottom of the well, then how would we choose to order our criminal justice practice? How would we talk publicly about those who break our laws? What would we do with juveniles who go awry, who roam the streets with guns and sometimes commit acts of violence? What weight would we give to various elements in the deterrence, retribution, incapacitation, rehabilitation calculus if we thought that calculus could end up being applied to our own children or to us? How would we apportion blame and affix responsibility for the cultural and social pathologies evident in some quarters of our society if we envision that we ourselves might well have been born into the social margins where such pathology flourishes? Without making a full-fledged philosophical argument of which I fear I may not be capable, I nevertheless wish to gesture in the spirit of John Rawls towards some answer to these questions. Specifically, I will be trying to show the limits of our pure ethic of personal responsibility as the basis for the distribution of the negative good of punishment in America's contemporary racially hierarchical and class stratified society. 
My aim is to shift the boundary toward a greater acknowledgement of social responsibility, social responsibility even for the wrongful acts freely chosen by individual persons. In pursuing this aim, I am not so much making a root causes argument, he did the crime, but only because he had no choice, as I am arguing that the society at large is implicated in his choices, because we have acquiesced in the structural arrangements which work to our benefit and to his detriment and which shape his consciousness and sense of identity in such a way that the choices he makes, which we may condemn, are nevertheless compelling to him. I am interested in the moral implications of what Loïc Vacant has called the double-sided production of urban marginality. As a social scientist, I will approach this problem of moral philosophy by emphasizing that closed and bounded social structures like racially homogeneous urban ghettos create context where pathological and dysfunctional cultural forms emerge. But these forms are not, I will suggest, intrinsic to the people caught in these structures nor are they independent of the behavior of the people who stand outside of them. Disparity in the incidence of punishment in America is just one facet of a persisting racial hierarchy. Persistent group inequality is nothing new. Many societies have sustained long periods of hierarchical organization characterized by distinctly unequal opportunities for members of different social groups. Examples include, of course, the United States during slavery and Jim Crow where hierarchy and status were based on an informal system of racial classification, or South Africa during apartheid, where a person's social identity was based on a formal system of racial classification, and in the Indian subcontinent, where one finds caste-based hierarchies that have been in place for centuries. I'm going to argue that there is a common structural element that spans these otherwise very different cases, the deleterious effects on human development that derive from social segregation. In each of these societies, a transition has taken place from an explicitly hierarchical order to what is at least notionally an egalitarian one. And yet, when one looks closely, the consequences of these transitions have been less than fully satisfying. Evidently, historical discrimination against a marginal identity group implies that formal equality of opportunity need not result in the convergence of group outcomes. One of the principal reasons for this, I argue, is that informal social networks remain segregated under the newly reformed order. Enforcement of anti-discrimination laws may eradicate discrimination, but because many important non-market interactions lie outside the scope of such laws, the reform process cannot undo the harmful effects of stigma. The law can have only the most modest impact on individual choices of a date or a spouse or an adopted child or a role model or a residence in a neighborhood or membership in a voluntary association. Early childhood development takes place within the spheres of family, neighborhood, and peer group. Racial segregation and the formation of these social networks can have important implications for the perpetuation of group inequality across generations. Discrimination in contact can give rise to persistent group inequality even in the absence of discrimination in contract. At the most basic conceptual level, one expects to see a link between social segregation and the dynamics of inequality because of what an economist would call interpersonal spillovers in human capital accumulation. Human development always and everywhere takes place within a social context and can be greatly facilitated by access to a social network that is rich in human capital. In his classic article on the mechanics of economic development, Robert Lucas, Nobel laureate, observed that, and I quote, human capital accumulation is a social activity involving groups of people in a way that has no counterpart in the accumulation of physical capital. 
The economist William Brock and Stephen Derloff have hypothesized that a given individual's cost of investing effort in education falls as the level of investment by his social affiliates rises. When this is so, two persons with identical ability who belong to different social groups will generally make different investment decisions, and the group bias and social ties can cause historical group disparities to become locked in. This can happen even though human capital investments are not impeded by financial constraints. I have, um, I have uh, explored this issue at the level of theory in a paper with Sam Bowles and Rajiv Sethi. Sam Bowles of uh, um, uh, the University of Siena in Italy and um, that place in New Mexico <laughs> that I can't think of now and Rajiv Sethi at Columbia University. The paper develops a model where people belong to one of two groups and parents invest in the human capital of their children. I have this schematic here on the uh, screen which gives you some idea of the essential elements of the model. We study the case where there are two occupational categories, one of which requires a costly human capital investment and the other not. The cost of human capital depends on ability and on the level of human capital in a person's social network. Under market competition, wages are determined by the overall distribution of human capital in the economy, and investment decisions are assumed to depend on anticipated wages. Discrimination in the labor market is assumed to not to exist due to the perfect enforcement of laws guaranteeing formal equality of opportunity, and yet, nevertheless, we show that even if ability is identically distributed between the two groups, when the initial state is one of inequality, when human capital spillovers are important, and when the degree of informal segregation of social networks is sufficiently great, then the members of different groups will invest in human capital at different rates. Their free choices under those conditions will lead to a perpetuation of inequality. Um, so uh, two groups, let's call them B and W. Social networks somewhat segregated. Human capital is acquired if the cost to a person is low enough. The cost is lower, the higher is the level of human capital in an agent's network. And so a person acquires human capital only if the human capital in his network is high enough. Inequality persists if the blacks choose not to acquire and the whites choose to acquire human capital. There will be a critical level of human capital in one's network that leads one to choose to acquire. So we've got some equations here, you see. Dr. Rationalist is back. Give a symbol for the proportion of the blacks in the population, let that be beta. Give a symbol for the degree of segregation in agents' network, let that be eta. And the state of inequality that I'm talking about in this simple world is one where the whites invest in human capital and the black do not. If the conditions, uh, if that holds in the equilibrium of this model, then group inequality persists. Now, how might that be? The idea here is that XB and XW represent the rate of human capital investment in the black and the white populations, respectively. The idea is that the blacks are going to be zero and the whites are going to be one, and the equilibrium, that's going to be inequality. The overall situation for the society is a weighted average of what happens in the two groups, and that's represented by the equation X is beta plus one minus beta times the other. The weighted average of the investment rate into two groups is the investment rate for the society. The networks are formed by envisioning a random process where the network consists of people either drawn from the population or drawn from your group, drawn from the population with probability one minus eta and from within your group with probability eta so that the average character of your network is a weighted average of the average 
uh, investments in the population as a whole and in your specific group. And that's represented by the two equations which say sigma b, the average quality of a uh, network, uh, human capital uh, in the network of a b, is a weighted average of xb, the characteristic of his group, and of x, the characteristic of the society, and sigma w, the average quality of human capital in the network of someone who is in the group W is a weighted average of XW, the characteristic of his group, and of X, the characteristic of the society, where the weight eta is a parameter measuring the degree of segregation in social networks. If eta were zero, everyone's network would be like the society as a whole, and there would be no segregation. If eta were one, everyone's network would consist only of people like oneself, only of people from one's own group. The idea is that we have a stable equilibrium of inequality if the quality of the network of Ws is high enough to warrant them investing in human capital. That's at the bottom line of the screen where it shows sigma W being above the threshold. Enough human capital in the network of the typical member of group W to allow human capital investment to be rational for members of that group. And at the same time, the sigma B for the people in the uh, group B is below the threshold not sufficient human capital in their network to allow it to be rational for persons in that network to invest in human capital. Okay, so that's the model. It can't really get any simpler than that, although it may not be transparent to the audience who's not familiar with this particular mode of social manipulation. And perhaps you, uh, or symbolic manipulation is what I meant to say, maybe a little social manipulation in this room, and perhaps, Perhaps you get what I was trying to say in that dialogue about the angst that I feel when I think professional responsibilities and my peers looking on and what the standards are versus what is demanded by the problem and the relevancy of the tools that I bring to it. In any case, we can work it out and we can get a picture and the picture looks like this. The picture says that a stable equilibrium of inequality will come about in this society in which the whites are, notwithstanding the fact that there is no ongoing discrimination, only as a consequence of the fact of the social segregation of the network, are investing in human capital, and the blacks are not investing. Everyone's got the same ability. Everyone has the same access to opportunity. These are choices that people are making. And the only difference, rational choices, choices for which presumably they ought to be held accountable, and the only difference is that uh, in one case, you belong to a group which, because they are investing at a high rate and because the social networks are in-group biased, has networks that are rich in this social resource that makes the individual choice to be more, more productive, uh, rational for you, whereas in the other group that's not the case. Uh, what this picture shows is that the threshold level of segregation above which persistent group inequality takes place is a function of the demographic datum, beta, the proportion of the group B uh, in the population. Now this finding is relevant to a debate over appropriate policy response to a history of um, overt discrimination. Uh, and in, general, in a general way, it's relevant to a discussion of racial inequality in the burden imposed by law enforcement. Rule-oriented approaches emphasize the equality of individual persons before the law. This procedural approach to defining equal citizenship is characterized by a focus on individuals and their rights, but necessarily gives short shrift to group interactions and large-scale social processes. And it leaves little room for the advocacy of group redistributive remedies. That inequality can persist indefinitely between racially self-aware population aggregates, even in the face of formal equality of opportunity, 
need not imply group redistributive policies ought to be adopted in every case, but it does mean that a failure to adopt them can result in persistent divergence across groups in economic and social outcomes. Put differently, if group equality is a policy goal, equal opportunity may not be enough to secure it. Conditional on the income of their parents, African Americans, it has been shown in studies, earn substantially less, about a third lower incomes than do whites. That is conditional on the income of their parents. And this intergenerational race gap has not diminished appreciably over the last two decades. In a similar spirit, Derek Neal, the economist at the University of Chicago, reports that convergence in years of schooling attained and cognitive scores at given levels of schooling which was being celebrated prior to 1980, appears not to have continued thereafter. Significant racial differences in mortality, wealth, subjective well-being, and other indicia are also uh, persistent. Enduring discriminatory practices are no doubt part of the explanation. The hypothetical that we have achieved the state of full equality of opportunity is just that. It's a hypothetical. Um, and these, this, this discrimination can be motivated by racial prejudice and hostility of the sort that the economist Gary Becker talked about, or by more subtle psychic mechanisms. Although there is considerable survey evidence to suggest that the principle of equality of opportunity is now widely accepted, it is also clear from the evidence that racial stereotypes persist to the disadvantage of blacks, and as I suggested yesterday, that the policy preferences of whites on facially non-racial matters, like welfare and crime, are nevertheless influenced again to the disadvantage of blacks by racial factors. Racial sorting within social networks represents a mechanism other than explicit formal discrimination through which group inequality may be sustained. Segregation of friendship networks, mentoring relationships, neighborhoods, workplaces, and schools places the less affluent group at a disadvantage in acquiring the things, contacts, information, cognitive skills, behavioral attitudes, that contribute to economic success. Preferentially associating with members of one's own kind, uh, known as um, uh, homophily, is a common human trait that has been well documented for race and ethnic identification, as well as religion and other uh, characteristics in a raft of studies that I could cite. Um, a recent survey of empirical work in this area by McPherson, Smith, Lovin, and Cook reported that, and I'll quote, we find strong homophily on race and ethnicity in a wide range of relationships, ranging from the most intimate bonds of marriage and confiding to the more limited ties of schoolmate friendship and work relations, to the limited networks of discussion about a particular topic, to the mere fact of appearing in public or knowing about someone else. Homophily limits people's social worlds in a way that has powerful implications for the information they receive, the attitudes they form, and the interactions they experience, close quote. In a nationally representative sample of 130 schools and 90,118 students, controlling for racial school composition, same race friendships were found to be almost twice as likely as cross-race friendships. Compared to the friends of white students in this sample, the friends of African-American students had significantly lower grades, attachment to school, and parental socioeconomic status. There is also evidence that peer effects such as penalties for acting white, so-called acting white, amongst African-American students can provide disincentives for academic achievement. I'll come back to that in a moment. 
While there are many channels through which the racial bias in social networks can disadvantage members of the less well-off group, statistical identification of these effects uh, often is an insurmountable challenge because networks are selected by individuals, and as a result, exogenous variation in the composition of an individual's network is seldom observed. Some scholars, uh, like Caroline Hoxby at Harvard or Eric Hanischek, uh, the late John Kane and Rifkin in a recent study, have used the year-to-year -year cohort variation in racial composition within grade and school to attempt to identify racial network effects. They find large negative effects of racial sorting on the academic achievement of black students. Moreover, studies that use the randomized assignment of college roommates have also found important behavioral and academic peer effects. Another study of annual hours work that used longitudinal data with individual fixed effects found strong neighborhood effects, especially for the least educated and those in the poorest neighborhoods. An experimental study documents strong peer effects in a production task, particularly for those with low productivity in the absence of peers. Our model shows that socioeconomic outcomes for blacks and whites can continue to diverge across generations in the face of formal equality of opportunity and as a consequence of the rational choices that freely acting people are making because of racial differences in the social networks to which individuals have access. Now, social networks are also social products the result of the choices to affiliate that people make. In turn, choices about formal association and imagined connectivity are at least partially guided by how people perceive and value those with whom they might or might not connect. So we need to consider why in the era of racism and discrimination, if the era of racism and discrimination has passed, we need to consider why are the social networks important for human development so consistently segregated by race in American society. In this regard, I believe that it is critical critically important to distinguish between racial discrimination and racial stigma. Discrimination has to do with how blacks are treated, while stigma is concerned with how black people are perceived. I do not claim that these two kinds of bias are mutually exclusive. Still, I think this distinction is useful for, whereas the bias emerging from formal discrimination presents a straightforward moral problem and calls forth the nearly universally embraced remedy of anti-discrimination law, the barriers to human development deriving from informal racial bias uh, is subtler. More, it's a more insidious moral problem, one that may be impossible to remedy in any manner likely to garner a majority's support. This difficulty has both a cognitive and an ethical dimension. From a cognitive point of view, many observers, when seeking an explanation for a group's poor social performance, may not distinguish between limited opportunities for development and limited capacities to develop. From an ethical point of view, citizens who find the overt discrimination by race associated with formal bias to be noxious may nonetheless be unmoved by the tacit discrimination that, black, that blocks access for blacks to the informal social networks that facilitate human development. In my 2002 book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, I suggested that we think about race as a social phenomenon which results from the combination of two processes categorization and signification. Categorization entails the sorting of persons into cognitively manageable number of subgroups based on their physical appearance in order to differentiate one's dealings with such persons. Signification involves the mental activity of associating certain connotations or meanings with these categories. 
my argument in that book was that at bottom, race is all about embodied social signification. With my core concept, biased social cognition, I attempted to move from the fact that people make use of racial classification to some understanding of how this alters the causal accounts settled upon for what they observe in the social world. I asked, how does the race of those experiencing some difficult circumstance affect whether powerful observers come to understand the plight of the disadvantage as constituting a societal as distinct from a communal problem? I'm now going to put up a figure which models an abstract dynamic process where the prevalence of some activity within a social group evolves over time. This in the service of illustrating the phenomenon that I called biased social cognition. And so here we have the axes for a graph. And here we have a curve that I'm calling f of x. For concreteness, let us suppose that x represents the prevalence of gun carrying among young males in some population at stage t of an adjustment process. I'll call that x of t. Each young man decides on his own whether or not to carry at each stage of the process based on how many others he expects to be carrying. That is, a given young man carries only if he thinks the overall carry rate is sufficiently great. But this threshold above which a given young man chooses to carry or not varies from one person to the next. So that lazy S curve that you see there, labeled f of x, depicts the proportion of young men who feel obliged to carry a gun when they expect that the overall carrying rate is x. The figure illustrates a phenomenon that is sometimes referred to as the tipping property. Because if x, the anticipated rate of carrying in a population, is less than that x star on the figure, as you can see, relatively few will want to carry. But if x is bigger than x star, then quickly most will want to carry. The dynamic behavior of this little system, therefore, depends upon initial conditions. If the initial uh, x lies uh, above the uh, critical point x star, as you can see, by walking that little step from the curve over to the 45-degree line and up, the dynamic path of carrying in the population will converge to a high level. Yes, think about that for a minute. If we started at x naught, the height of the curve tells us how many young men would want to carry. If those are the number who are carrying at the first stage, by going over to the 45-degree line, the height of the curve up from the 45-degree line, which is not labeled in the figure, but it's the dashed line going up, tells us how many we want to carry at the second stage. Back over to the 45-degree line and up to the curve again, we stepwise march, as those arrows show, from an initial condition toward a long-run equilibrium in this little dynamic system. And if you started above a threshold, you're going to converge to a high level of carrying. Um, while if the initial expectation uh, were to be below the threshold, then with the same logic of going to the curve and referring to the 45-degree line and back to the curve again to see how the dynamic path of carrying would evolve in the population, you will converge to a low level of carrying in the population. Now, if there were two racially distinct and socially isolated population subgroups, then even though these racial groups may be characterized by an identical distribution of gun-carrying proclivities represented by that function f of x, different initial conditions would lead to radically different long-run behavioral patterns within the groups. And even though I illustrate this argument by reference to 
gun ownership, and uh, the same logic would apply to many other behaviors where the value of an action to each individual depends on how many other individuals in their social network uh, are acting in a similar way. Consider now the inferences, and this is really my point. This is a little trivial, dynamical example, but the point that I want to make follows here. Consider now the inferences about group inequality that someone observing this process might be inclined to make. The structure here is a bit complex. Multiple self-sustaining patterns of behavior are consistent with a common population distribution of some trait. Here, the proclivity to carry a gun. If whites are observed mainly near the low equilibrium in the figure, and if blacks are observed mainly near the high one, an observer, particularly one already inclined in this direction, will be tempted to conclude that the racial populations are essentially different, characterized by distinct distribution functions. Say, a high one for the group that has a high level of carrying, and that's incorrectly labeled W when it should be labeled B, and a low uh, distribution in the population for a group that has a low level of carrying. I'm simply saying that observing these, uh, the outcome of this process and linking the observations to, racially, uh, uh, to racial identity, which can be readily seen, uh, at least is consistent with accommodating an inference about the causality that's actually wrong relative to what the objective causality is. The objective causality is that there is a uniform system which has the property of leading, depending upon history, to different long-term outcomes. But the inferences that an observer might make could impute distinct, qualitatively distinct characteristics to the two populations. And unless someone is inclined to interrogate that inference, unless someone thinks that, oh no, that must be wrong, what am I missing here? They might easily settle in upon a false um, explanation. That's what I'm calling biased social cognition. They might settle upon what I call a racially essentialist account of inequality. The choice between the complex structural account and the simplistic essentialist one is a choice of specification about the causal processes underlying one's observations, which can easily be impacted by the social meanings associated with the racial markers characteristic of a particular society. And while this is just a toy example, of course, the natural thing that one would want to do would be to envision, a, as a social psychologist might do, a laboratory experimental implementation that would try to identify these different uh, cognitive uh, conclusions that might be drawn just based on pure visual cues and nothing, uh, nothing further. In any case, what I'm trying to suggest here with this little model is that the tacit association of blackness with unworthiness in America's American public imagination affects cognitive processes and promotes essentialist causal misattributions. When confronted with the facts of racially disparate achievement, racially disproportionate transgression of legal strictures, and racially unequal development of productive potential, observers will have difficulty identifying with the plight of a group of people whom they mistakenly think are simply reaping what they have sown. Now, I can make this point, uh, the same point with a less abstract example, and one that does not involve race. Consider for a moment gender inequality. We know that there is a disparity in the social outcomes for boys and girls in two different venues, the schools and the jails. Thus, suppose that when compared to girls, boys are overrepresented among those doing well in math and science in the schools, and also among those doing poorly in society at large by ending up in jail. There's a lot of evidence to support both suppositions, but only the first is widely perceived to be a problem for public policy. Why? 
My answer is that it offends our basic intuitions about the propriety of underlying social processes that boys and girls have different levels of achievement in the technical curriculum of our schools. And although we may not be able to put our finger on exactly why this outcome occurs, we instinctively know that it is not right. In the face of this disparity, we are inclined to interrogate our institutions, to search the record of our social practice and examine myriad possibilities in order to see where things might have gone wrong. Our baseline expectation is that equality ought to prevail here. Our moral sensibility is offended when it does not. And so an impetus to reform is spurred thereby. We cannot easily envision a wholly legitimate sequence of events that would produce the disparity, and so we set ourselves the task of solving a problem. On the other hand, gender disparity in rates of imprisonment occasions no such disquiet. This is because tacitly, if not explicitly, we are gender essentialists. That is, we think boys and girls are different in some ways relevant to explaining the observed disparity, different either in their biological natures or in their deeply ingrained socializations. Now, I have to, I have to pause here because I have a, I have a um, Larry Summers problem. <laughs> and I don't want to be misunderstood. I am making no claim. I'm making no claim about objective reality. I'm talking about the folk model of causation carried in the heads of persons who observe a social phenomena and then react to it. And I think that my uh, surmise here is a correct surmise regarding how a man on the street, not a social scientist, not a neurolo uh, neurological specialist, might, uh, might give an account, and if not an explicit account, then a tacit account of what, what is observed. And I, I wish to say here, although we are gender essentialists, and we think that uh, people, men and women, boys and girls, are different in their biological natures or in their deeply ingrained socialization in a way that bears on criminal offending and that could conceivably account for the gender disparity in jails, the essentialism with which I'm concerned need not be based solely or even mainly in biology. And of course, I talk of essentialism here with respect to gender, but I have it in mind with respect to race. It could also be grounded in possibly false beliefs about profound cultural differences that are presumed to attach to gender or to race uh, as well. So as gender essentialists, our intuitions are not offended by the fact of vastly higher rates of imprisonment amongst males than females. We seldom ask any deeper question about why this disparity has come about. In this sense, we do not perceive there to be a problem, and so no solution is sought. Now, we may be right or wrong to act as we do in these gender disparity matters, but my point with the example is to show that the bare facts of gender disparity do not in themselves suggest any course of action. To act, we must marry the facts we observe to some model of social causation. This model need not be explicit in our minds. It can, and usually will, lurk beneath the surface of our conscious reflections. Still, it is the facts plus the model that lead us to perceive a given circumstance as indicative of some as yet undiagnosed failing in our social interactions or not. This kind of reflection on the deeper structure of our social cognitive processes as they bear on the issues of racial disparity is what I have in mind when I speak of biased social cognition and the role of race in such processes is what I am alluding to when I talk about racial stigma. Such stigma could be of great political moment because if one attributes an endogenous difference, which is to say a difference produced within a system of social interactions, to an exogenous cause, which is to say a cause that is located outside of that system, then one is unlikely to see any need for systemic reform. This distinction between endogenous and exogenous sources of social causation, I am arguing, is the key to understanding the difference in our reformist intuitions 
about gender inequalities in the schools and in the jails. Because we think the disparity of school outcomes stems from endogenous sources, while the disparity of jail outcomes is tacitly attributed in most of our causal models to exogenous sources, we are differentially moved to do something about the observed disparities. So the effect that I'm after when I talk about racial stigma and the reason I employ an apparently loaded phrase like biased social cognition is this. It is a politically consequential cognitive distortion to understand the observably disadvantageous position of a racially defined population subgroup as having emerged from qualities taken to be intrinsic to the group when, as a matter of actual social causation, that disadvantage is the product of a system of social interactions. I argue that a given instance of social disparity is less likely to be thought to constitute a social problem when people see the disparity as having been caused by what they take to be the deficiencies of those, for example, the boys in the jails, but not the girls in the schools, who lag behind. I reiterate that it hardly matters whether the internal qualities mistakenly seen as source of the group's observed uh, laggardly status are biological or cultural. What matters, I argue, is that something has gone wrong if we, observe, if we as observers fail to see systemic and endogenous processes that lead to bad social outcomes for a group and instead attribute the results to what we take to be qualities of the persons in that group themselves. Now, let Dr. Rationalist have one more go at it here. I want to turn to another example. I'm going to call it the reputation game. The reputation game models an ethically significant interaction between Bob and John. Okay. Um, in this dynamic game of incomplete information, John can be one of two types. He can be soft or he can be tough. Bob decides at the outset whether or not to challenge. If he challenges, John gets to decide whether or not to fight. Okay? The payoffs in the structure are such that um, the game, I should say, is ethically significant because it shows that the link between character and behavior depends upon the social context. That's the point that I'm trying to get across here with the example. The payoffs specified in parentheses of the diagram are such that both the soft and the tough versions of John would much prefer not to be attacked. Those numbers in parentheses are what gets uh, the, the value of the outcome for Bob and for John, respectively. So Bob gets zero if he elects not to challenge. If he challenges and is fought, he gets minus one. If he challenges and is not fought, he gets plus one. Whereas John gets four, either type of John, if he is not challenged. But if he is challenged, not fighting gives John one, and fighting gives the soft version of John minus one and gives the tough version of John plus two. So tough John wants to fight when he's challenged. Soft John prefers not to fight when he's challenged. Um, okay. And the payoffs also indicate that Bob wants not to attack if he will be fought, as I said, and wants to attack if he will not be fought. If this interaction between Bob and John were to occur only once, then rational agents would uh, play as follows. If attacked, a tough John fights and a soft John does not. So Bob computes the average of his payoff over the outcomes that would obtain and attacks only if he thinks the probability that John is tough is less than a half. The soft uh, and the tough John types react naturally. Soft one doesn't fight if he's attacked, and the tough one does. The game is trivial. But should these players interact twice in succession, playing the same game with the same people, the outcome of the game is more interesting. Now, John's actions at the first stage can serve as a signal to Bob about his type. 
thereby affecting how the second stage is played. John knows this. Bob knows that John knows this. John knows that Bob knows that John knows this and so on. Okay. Now, as a piece of game theory, this is trivial. I'm not saying anything, uh, you know, this is not rocket science up here. Nevertheless, I'm going to try to make a point. Okay. So let me make some claims about what has to be true if these people are going to have this interaction in two successive rounds, in one, uh, two successive rounds. They're going to play the game twice. First claim I make is that if the game is going to be played twice, it's inconsistent with rationality for soft John to never fight when he's attacked even though his preferences are to not fight. Okay, now why do I know that this is true? Because if he never fought when he was first attacked, then because the tough John always fights when he's first attacked, John's actions at the first stage of this interaction would perfectly signal his type. Fighting at the first stage would mean that he's tough, not fighting would mean that he's soft. And so then Bob, being rational, would respond to the situation at the second stage by foregoing to attack if he was fought in the first stage, since he would then know that he is facing a tough guy and attacking for sure if he were not fought in the first stage because he would then know that he was facing a soft guy. And yet, if Bob behaved in this way, by using the first stage experience as a signal about whether or not to attack in the second stage, if he were to behave in that way, um, it would mean that the soft version of uh, John could avoid being attacked at the second stage if he were to just go ahead and fight at the first stage anyway. Because then, and so if he were rational, he would want to do this because by fighting the first time and getting minus one, he would guarantee himself plus four the second time for a net payoff overall of plus three, whereas by not fighting the first time, he would get plus one and he would be challenged again and would not fight the second time and would get plus one as well for a net payoff of plus two. Three being bigger than two, he'd want to fight. I'm just saying, in a world in which it were in fact the case that he never fought when challenged at a, uh, for a two-round inter interaction, he never fought at the first round when challenged, then um, the, the behavior of uh, the aggressor here would always be to attack at the second stage only if I was not fought at the first stage. But then it would pay for a guy, even though he didn't like fighting, to fight in order to avoid attack. So that can't be consistent with rationality. I want to make another claim. If this game is played twice, it's going to be inconsistent with rationality for Bob to always attack at the second stage after being fought at the first stage. And the argument for that is simply that if Bob always were to attack after being fought, Soft John can gain nothing by fighting at the first stage, and so being rational, he would never fight at the first stage when attacked, but we've already shown that that can't occur when the players are rational. All right, so there's a little theorem about a little game. What's my point? Taken together, these claims, and I see Paul Milgram sitting here, and I think of Milgram and Roberts and Krebs and Wilson and uh, the chain store paradox, and I had to say that because Paul Milgram is sitting here, but uh, anyway. That's the idea. It's an old idea that's been around for a long time. Taken together, these claims uh, imply that the only outcome of this twice-played interaction, given the payoffs that I've specified, that's consistent with rationality, has Soft John mixing his behavior at the first stage between fighting and not fighting, while Bob mixes his behavior at the second stage between attacking and not conditional on having been um, fought at the first stage. If Bob, of course, has not fought at the first stage, then he knows he's dealing with soft John, and so he's definitely going to attack at the second stage. By mixing, I simply mean to say they don't always do the same thing. I'm just talking about what a tennis player does when he comes to the net, and the guy's going to hit a passing shot. He might go down the line or cross court. If you waited to see where the ball was going, you'd never be able to get to it, so you have to decide to lunge one way or the other. But you don't always lunge the same way every time, because if you did, the guy would know which way you're lunging, and he would hit it the other way, and he would win every time. 
Likewise, the guy who's on the offense doesn't always go cross-court or he doesn't always go down the line because then you would lunge the way that he's going all the time. So both players have to randomize in their actions in order for an outcome of the interaction to be consistent with their rational play. That's all I'm trying to say here. Um, Bob would mix at the second stage uh, when attack, uh, between attacking and not given that he was initially fought. Uh, and if the probability of uh, the John being um, uh, tough is less than a half, Bob's assessment of the likelihood that John is tough is less than a half, then the unique equilibrium of this twice-played game entails soft John fighting when first attacked with a probability that's uh, P over 1 minus P, if P is the prior probability that uh, John is soft in Bob's mind, and Bob attacking at the second stage if fought at the first stage with probability 1 third. One can work that out. John's personal values may reflect a disdain for fighting, and yet his rational adaptation to his circumstances lead him to behave in a way that is inconsistent with those values. Now, the position I'm trying to illustrate here is that we're not looking down into the souls or at the predetermined qualities of groups when we observe disparate patterns of behavior, particularly when the networks within which people are interacting are, uh, are segregated. We're looking at the end product, the final outcome of a process of social interaction that is embedded in a larger structure of social relations, where ideas about race and racial identity are playing a prominent role. To see what I have in mind here, I want to talk now a little bit more about the acting white problem that has been called to our attention by the anthropologist, the late anthropologist John Ogbu, by the work of Ronald Ferguson at Harvard, uh, by recent work by the economist Roland Fryer uh, and others. The idea that black students are said to ostracize their peers who value academic success, labeling such behavior as acting white. This is said to be a characteristic of black peer culture that impedes academic performance amongst African Americans. Um, the graphs that I'm showing you here um, uh, present some data that's relevant to this issue, showing the relationship between popularity and grades found in uh, the Adolescent Health Survey of American high school students from the early 1990s uh, amongst racially defined adolescent peer groups in this uh, random sample of American uh, high schools. This is taken from the research of uh, Roland Fryer at Harvard. The response to data such as these, I would observe, uh, in response to data such as these, and I mean, just look at the data, uh, you may not be able to read the legend very well. Let me just tell you that that top line on the left panel shows the correlation between grades and the popularity of students in these high schools who are white. And as you can see, it goes continually up indicating that the smarter students, or if you will, the students who have better grades, tend to be more popular students within the white uh, peer groups. The middle line is for blacks and the lower line is for Hispanics. And what you see is that in both of those lines, they are not uniformly upward sloping. Uh, and moreover, past a certain point, higher grades tend to uh, be associated with a person being less popular. I could tell you in detail how popularity is measured here. Students are asked to name their best three friends in the high school and an index is constructed on the basis of the students' responses to those questions that allows you to assess the students' popularity. The acting white phenomenon is associated with the fact that the line turns down after a certain point, that you're thought to be not somehow ethnically authentic if you get good grades, and therefore your incentives to acquire good grades are, are attenuated by that. Now, um, the right panel is the, same, uh, is the same data and the same basic relationship that's being estimated. Only in the right panel, a lot of controls 
for other factors are uh, put on the right-hand side of a regression of popularity on grades, whereas in the left panel, it's merely a pure uh, binary association between those two variables. Uh, the acting white phenomenon is still observable even after you've controlled for these other factors. Now, in response to data such as these, I'd observe that acting white probably has as much to do with the way that white people act as it has to do with the way that black people act. Even though the argument is often that, someone, that you're saying something that's characteristic of black culture. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is about what do you mean by black culture when people are embedded in a system of social interactions that has people other than blacks in it and that affects the way that they act? How do you know the boundary that circumscribes the, uh, something that is essentially black culture in such a situation? It may be a very bad conceptual move to talk about black culture in such a situation, a conceptual move with political consequences, consequences of abetting essentialist accounts of racial inequality. Because the fact is that Fryer, in this very study, finds that in schools where the population, and therefore one would have to say the culture, is predominantly black, he doesn't observe this acting white behavior. When he refines this study to take into account the demographic compositions of the school overall, breaking the sample up into subsamples of schools that are predominantly or 30% or 50% black and schools that are where blacks are below 20%, he finds the acting white phenomenon in the schools where blacks are below 20% of the aggregate population, but not in schools where blacks are more numerous. Okay. So, as I say, while in schools where blacks are fewer than 20% of the student body, the correlation between grades and popularity can be negative for black students, at least when grades are above some certain level, um, but uh, not in schools where uh, blacks are in a majority. What this says to me is that the way that the black kids are interacting with each other has something to do with the way that the black kids and the white kids interact with each other. So to talk about a pathological black youth culture on the basis of this kind of evidence without reference to the larger structure of social interaction within which black students are situated would just be simply to make a mistake. Let me give you another example to illustrate my point. And uh, now I don't know if it's Dr. Rationalist or Dr. Functionalist who's quaking here. But here goes. Given that there is high racial endogamy, I'm talking about most married blacks are married to other blacks, and most married whites are married to other whites, one might imagine that the huge disparity in marital behavior and childbearing between blacks and whites, childbearing behavior, differences in out-of-wedlock birth rates, lower marriage rates amongst blacks, and so forth, uh, provides compelling evidence of a racially distinct cultural practice. After all, you have most blacks marrying blacks, and that's the way they behave. You have most whites marrying whites, and that's the way they behave. Why am I not entitled to draw some inferences about qualitatively different patterns or orientations of behavior within the two groups? Is one not forced to conclude that a higher out-of-wedlock birth rate amongst blacks than whites or a lower marriage rate indicates racially disparate cultural dynamic? Yet consider that since there are six times as many whites as blacks in America, were the percentage of white men marrying black women to increase slightly, and I'm not saying that it's anybody's fault that it is what it is, I'm just saying were it higher, the nature of the marriage market amongst blacks would be dramatically changed. As an economist, my model of marriage involves bargaining between negotiating parties over the division of surplus from cooperation within the household. I mean, I don't have any other model of marriage. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Dr. Functionalist or uh, Dr. Desaad might have a different model, but I don't. <laughs> it's not a bad model as a first cut. 
<laughs> in any case, in any case, the threat point in that negotiation is, in effect, how well could I do if I didn't have you? Now, if that threat point were to move a little bit, because let's say 5% of white men were intermarrying with black women, that would move the threat point of black women in the intra-racial marriage bargaining market considerably vis-a-vis -vis black men, then the leverage of black women in that intra-racial market could be considerably enhanced, and as a result, a very different outcome might arise in the equilibrium of marital interactions between black men and black women. Put in colloquial terms, perhaps black men would be less trifling if they had more competition. <laughs> but you get the point. Of course, this speculation is all a bit tongue-in-cheek. My point, however, is not factual. I'm, making, I'm not making a policy recommendation. My point is conceptual. It's a mistake to say of black men and women that their marital behavior believes inadequacies of black culture when what one observes is the equilibrium outcome from a system of social interactions within which a change of behavior across the group boundaries, in the case at hand, behavior between white men and black women, would partially, uh, partially determines the outcome that you're observing. Okay. Now, given the social meaning of blackness in contemporary American uh, culture, I conclude that a racial disparity in the incidence of punishment is less likely to be seen as a, as a societal problem and more likely to be rationalized as a communal or an individual problem. Uh, as in the old conservative argument, I think of that book by Bill Bennett, John DeUlio, and John Walters called Body Count from 1996 that holds that crime is a uh, failing of personal character, that it is caused by moral poverty. They argue that quite literally uh, in that book. And so it is that in our time, an enormous racial disparity in the imposition of social exclusion, civic excommunication, and lifelong disgrace and inequality engendered by mechanisms of imprisonment so extensive as I tried to show yesterday in their reach and so punitive in their practice as to dwarf any the modern world has heretofore known can come to seem legitimate, even necessary. This disparity cannot be seen as having been caused by our failures. The inadequacy has to be seen as theirs. Because this entire dynamic has its roots in a uh, in past unjust acts that were perpetrated on the basis of race, present-day racial inequality constitutes a gross historic injustice, I'm arguing. And because the instrumentalities of exclusion, degradation, humiliation, shaming, and stigmatization associated with our prison industrial complex are so central to the perpetuation of this unjust hierarchical order, their legitimacy and that of the state which promulgates them is called into question, at least in the eyes of those bearing the brunt of this world historic internal mobilization of state power. The minimalist ethical principle that I wish to advance here is that historical racial injustice establishes a general presumption against indifference to contemporary racial inequality. This implies that the assignment of personal responsibility for wrongful acts is in and of itself insufficient to the task of doing justice. The sum of a million cases, each one rightly judged on its merits to be individually fair, may nevertheless constitute a great historic wrong. Thus, a central reality of our time is the fact that there has opened a wide racial gap in the acquisition of cognitive skills, the extent of law-abidingness, and the stability of family relations, attachment in the workforce and, like, and the like. And this disparity in human development is, as an historical matter, rooted in political, economic, and social and cultural factors peculiar to our society and reflective of its unlovely racial history. That criminal offending by race in this country is a societal and not merely a communal or a personal uh, achievement. It's a societal achievement. 
At the level of the individual case, we must, of course, act as if this were not so. There could be no law and thus no civilization without the imputation to particular persons of responsibilities for their wrongful acts. This is the age-old problem of autonomy versus heteronomy that bedeviled Kant. But the state does not only deal with individual cases. It also makes policies in the aggregate. And the consequences of these policies are more or less knowable. The morality of public action can therefore be assessed in these terms. If not by the lower courts, when they try individual cases, then by appellate courts when they interpret the Constitution, and by legislatures when promulgating public law. Even if the current racial disparity in the incidence of punishment in our country gave evidence of no overt discrimination against blacks, and perhaps needless to say, I view that as a wildly optimistic supposition, it would still be true that powerful forces are at work to perpetuate the consequences of a universally acknowledged wrongful past. So, Combating such racism as continues to exist must be seen as insufficient to achieve racial justice. I propose to see the problem in interpretative terms, seeking the assumption of collective responsibility for what has ensued. So doing should serve to inhibit the adoption of punishment policies which engender large racial disparities. This argument does not rest merely on identifying processes of historical causation by arguing, for instance, that enforced racial segregation under Jim Crow impeded the accumulation of financial and social assets, and by linking said processes to contemporary disparities. Rather, this is in the first instance a matter of how we choose to interpret uh, the facts, of the narrative overlay that we impose upon the facts. I am arguing on the basis of historical memory for a common national narrative through which the past racial injury and its continuing significance can enter into our discourses, and in doing so, complicate the assignment of responsibility. To repeat, given our history, producing a racially defined nether caste through the ostensibly neutral application of law should be a profoundly offensive to our ethical sensibilities. All right, now I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. Several summers ago, uh, when I was in my uh, doctor uh, functionalist uh, persona. I took some time to read the nonfiction writings of the great 19th century Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. As you may know, he became an eccentric pacifist and radical Christian critic at the end of his life. I was stunned at the force of some of his arguments, though I confess I was not entirely persuaded on one of his key points that a true Christian must be absolutely celibate. <laughs> but what struck me most was Tolstoy's provocative claim that the core of Christianity lies in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I did say Tolstoy was eccentric at the end of his life. Tolstoy's argument that the core of Christianity lies in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You see that other fellow over there committing some terrible sin? Well, Jesus preaches, if you have ever lusted or allowed jealousy or envy or hatred to enter your own heart, then you are to be equally condemned. This, Tolstoy claims, is the central teaching of the Christian faith, namely that we're all in the same fix. Now, you mustn't worry that I'm about to launch into my own sermon on this august occasion. Still, it seems to me that this religious sentiment is relevant to the problem at hand. While the behavioral pathologies and cultural threats that we see in society, the moral erosions out there, the crime and drug addiction and sexually transmitted disease, the idleness and violence and all manner of deviance, while these are worrisome, Nevertheless, our moral crusade against these evils can take on a pathological dimension of its own. We can become self-righteous, 
legalistic, ungenerous, stiff-necked, and hypocritical. We can fail to see the moat in our own eye. We can neglect to raise questions of social justice. We can blind ourselves to the close relationship that actually exists between, on the one hand, behavioral, behavioral pathology and the so-called urban underclass of our country, and on the other hand, society-wide factors like our greed-driven economy, our media-encouraged worship of the self, our endemic culture of materialism, our vacuous political discourses, our declining civic engagement, our aversion to sacrificing private gain on behalf of much-needed public investments. We can fail to see, in other words, that the problems of the so-called underclass are but an expression at the bottom of the social hierarchy of a more profound and widespread moral deviance, one that involves all of us. Taking this position does not make me a moral relativist. I merely hold that when thinking about the lives of the disadvantaged in our society, the fundamental premise that should guide us is that we're all in this together. Those people languishing in the corners of our society are our people. They are us. And no, I don't think my saying this is going to make it so. No, I don't think my standing up here and announcing a particular moral position is going to persuade anybody of anything. No, I don't think sermons are enough. But it's still true as far as I can see, and I think it ought to be said. If for the record, and that be it, then let me say it for the record. Those people are our people. They're us. Whatever may be their race, their creed, or country of origin, whether they be crack addicted, AIDS infected, the mentally ill homeless, juvenile drug sellers, or worse, whatever the malady, whatever the offense, we're all in the same fix. We're all in this thing together. This is the point that Tolstoy and Jesus before him were making, and the Buddha, I could add, and this is the point I wish to urge upon your consideration at this moment. Just look at what we have wrought. We Americans have established what to many an outside observer looks like a system of racial caste in the center of our great cities. Of course, I refer here to millions of stigmatized, feared, and invisible people. The extent of disparity in the opportunity to achieve one's full human potential as between the children of the middle class and those of the disadvantaged, a disparity that one takes for granted in America, is unrivaled elsewhere in the industrial, advanced, civilized, free world. Yet, too many Americans have concluded, in effect, that those languishing at the margins of our society are simply reaping what they have sown. Their suffering is seen as having nothing to do with us, as not being evidence of systemic failures which can be corrected through collective action. Thus, as I noted yesterday afternoon, we've given up on the ideal of rehabilitating criminals and have settled for simply warehousing them. Thus, we accept, despite much rhetoric to the contrary, that it's virtually impossible effectively to educate the children of the poor. And yes, I know these are problems that are engaging people and are problems that are being worked on, but I nevertheless think my characterization of the state of affairs is accurate. Despite the best efforts of good people and of progressive institutions, despite the encouraging signs of moral engagement with these issues that I have seen in my students and others over the years that give me hope, despite these things, it remains the case that, speaking of the country as a whole, there is no broadly based demand for reform, no sense of moral outrage, no anguished self-criticism and public reflection in the face of this massive collective failure. I'm reminded in this context of Bill Cosby's widely reported criticisms of the black poor. Quoting Cosby, the lower economic types are not living up to their end of the deal. Cosby's been praised for his willingness to speak frankly about such matters, but courage and forthrightness and the willingness to call a spade a spade, as they say, are no substitutes for a cogent social analysis. 
Cosby's well-publicized lament is long on outrage, but it fails, falls woefully short of being a serious guide to action. Black leaders, he insists, should stop making excuses for these knuckleheads and should speak to, to, to today's youth more forthrightly, insisting on the continued relevance of tried and true virtues like self-restraint, self-discipline, hard work, and moral decency. Now, don't get me wrong. Saying all of this is fair enough. There's nothing wrong with black leaders exhorting their people to be decent. I'm not against that. Okay? But it is quite far from being enough said. A serious treatment of this issue would have to look beyond the purported culture of black ghetto dwellers and the public performances of so-called black leaders so as to reckon with larger social, political, and economic developments that have taken place in American society. Any serious prescription for how to cure what ails ghetto America must look beyond the rhetoric of an aging civil rights leadership class to consider why the social policy-making process at all levels of government has failed to respond more helpfully to the increasingly dire condition of our nation's most disadvantaged persons. That is to say, morally and intellectually serious engagement with these problems must deal not just with them, but with us. So much would seem upon reflection to be obvious. I am aware of no instance in human history where behavioral change on the scale that would be needed to reverse the dire straits of America's urban poor has come about through the exhortation of communal leaders. And again, I repeat, I'm not against communal leaders being communal leaders. I'm just against communal leadership being a substitute for politics. Social pathologies were not unknown in the European immigrant communities of early 20th century America. Scholars like Columbia University historian Ira Katznelson seem to agree that they were overcome not by hortatory campaigns of behavioral reform, and there were plenty of those, but rather by massive social policy interventions like the New Deal and the GI Bill. If it is obvious that some blacks need to clean up their acts, it is equally obvious that curing what ails America's ghettos will require the active involvement through our public institutions of all Americans. Where Cosby castigates black leaders for failing to instill proper values in our youth, I am left wondering, as I look back on the debacle that was Hurricane Katrina, where is American leadership on this problem? The core of the problem, as I have been suggesting over and over again, with your great patience the last two uh, days, is that the socially marginal are not seen as belonging to the same general body politic as the rest of us. At least implicitly, our political community acts as though some are different from the rest, and because of their culture, because of their bad values, their self-destructive behavior, their malfeasance, their criminality, their lack of responsibility, their unwillingness to seize the challenge of their own freedom, their unwillingness to work hard, they deserve their fate. Lest you think I exaggerate, here is what the current domestic policy advisor to the President of the United States, a man named Carl Zinsmeister, wrote in the pages of the American Enterprise magazine some years ago, and I quote, the troubling reality in our ghettos today is that the hellish torments are being inflicted by their own residents. If only some identifiable outside force were creating the siege conditions, nearly any American would gladly swing a battle axe against such an enemy. But the harder, more tragic reality is that inner city Americans are being brutalized by their own neighbors, their own reproductive partners, their own teenagers, their own mothers even, and ultimately by themselves. Who is forcing the crack pipe between those many lips? Close quote. 
you know, you might have thought that writing that would disqualify you from being the domestic policy advisor to the president, <laughs> but that's not the case. What we in the United States have failed to recognize, not merely individuals, I stress, as individuals, but as a political community, is that these ghetto enclaves and marginal spaces of our cities are products of our own making. Precisely because we do not want those people near us, we have structured the space in our urban environment so as to keep them away from us. Then, when they fester in their isolation and their marginality, we tut, 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 hypocritically pointing a finger and saying, in effect, look at those people. They are a threat to the civilized body. They must be expelled, imprisoned, controlled. It is not we who must institute responsible social reforms, but they who must embrace personal responsibility. It is not we who must set our social affairs aright, but they who must get their individual acts together. This posture, I wish to suggest, is inconsistent with the attainment of a just distribution of benefits and burdens in the society if we look at the problem of social justice in terms of a rational deliberation conducted behind Rawls' veil of ignorance. So I have endeavored to develop an argument in this spirit, applying the rational choice style of reasoning lightly that is natural to an economist. If you like, I'm splitting the difference between doctors rationalist and functionalist in that opening dialogue, using a series of models which, after all, is a hammer. It's the hammer that comes in my economist toolkit. So for my sake, this darn problem had better well be a nail. I've tried to illustrate the limits of an ethic of personal responsibility by graphically highlighting the extent to which a person's actions, including their law-breaking actions, are shaped by social forces beyond that person's control. Civic inclusion has been the historical imperative in Western political life for 150 years. And yet, despite our self-declared status as a light unto the nations, as a beacon of hope and freedom, uh, for freedom-loving peoples everywhere, despite these lofty proclamations which were belied by the images from the rooftops in flooded New Orleans uh, in September of 2005, and are contradicted by the reality inside our overcrowded prisons. The fact is that this historical project of civic inclusion is woefully incomplete in these United States. The futility of Pursuing civic inclusion has been declared by reactionary political forces like those represented by Carl Zinsmeister at every step along the way. Yet in every instance, these forces have been proven wrong. At one time or another, the goal has been derided of including women, landless peasants, former serfs and slaves, or immigrants more fully in the civic body, extending to them the franchise, educating their children, providing health and social welfare. These have all been controversial. They've always been. But this has been the direction in which the self-declared civilized and wealthy nations have steadily been marching since Bismarck, since the revolutions of 1848 and 1870, since the American Civil War and its Reconstruction Amendments, since the Progressive Era and through the New Deal and on to the Great Society. This is why we have a progressive federal income tax and, at least for a little while, an estate tax in this country. Why we feed, clothe, and house the needy. Why we used to worry about investing in our city's infrastructure and in the human capital of our people. What those images that we can all remember out of New Orleans a year and a half ago uh, showed is that this American project of civic, uh, civic inclusion remains incomplete. Nowhere is this incompleteness more evident than in the prisons and jails of America. And this as yet unfulfilled promise of American democracy reveals a yawning chasm between an ugly American reality and our nation's exalted image of herself. Thank you.
Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.